Friday. It's our show where we talk to people we think you might like to know. It's Fan Girl Friday. That's the theme song. <laughs> hey everybody, it's me, Katie Osaurus. And welcome to a new cool thing that we're doing here on Infinite Quest called Fan Girl Friday. Um, so here's the story of Fangirl Friday very quickly before we begin. Uh, so Eric uh, and I have been watching a show called Tudor Monastery Farm. And yes, it is as exciting as it sounds. Um, and basically, there is a historian on the show. Her name is Ruth Goodman. Uh, and Ruth Goodman is just a badass. She's just a badass. And basically, Eric looked at me at some point while we were watching the show, and he said, I want to talk to Ruth Goodman someday. And I thought, in my tiny pea brain, I too also wanted to talk to Ruth Goodman. So I emailed world-famous historian Ruth Goodman, and I said, hi, Ruth Goodman, my name's Katie, uh, and me and my friend Eric think you're cool. Will you be on our podcast? And Ruth Goodman said yes, which can we talk about? What a sport. What a sport old Ruth Goodman is. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So uh, one of the things that we always said from the very beginning about Infinite Quest is that we wanted to expand into different stuff, not just talking about education and, and uh, about mental health and that kind of stuff, but honestly, just kind of sharing parts of our lives with all of you, the things that excite us, the things that interest us. And so Fangirl Friday is a new installment that we're going to be doing every so often, where literally we just bring on interesting people that we want you to know a little bit more about, uh, and we talk to them. And so... Yeah, that's it. And and we want to be just really clear that the reason we can do this is because of the support of viewers like you, as they say on PBS. And so if you are interested in getting more uh, Infinite Quest content, if you're interested in, uh, you know, helping us support our mission of advocacy and education, you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash infinite quest. We have set a goal this month of having 150 patrons by the end of April. And Special episodes like this are going to be part of uh, how we keep Infinite Quest going and growing and all of that good stuff. So if you're interested in supporting us, it's patreon.com slash infinite quest. Uh, and so, yeah, welcome to Fangirl Friday. Transition. Dang it. Hey everybody, before we start the inaugural episode of Fangirl Friday, I thought it might be useful for me to give you a little bit of background about our guest, Ruth Goodman. Now, at the beginning of this episode, I said that she was a historian, and so if you were listening and you thought, my goodness, how very dull, oh my friend, oh my friend, buckle in, buckle in for such a wild ride, because Ruth Goodman is one of the most interesting people on this planet, and you need to know more about her. So Ruth Goodman is a historian who specializes primarily in domestic life. So studying about how people used to brush their teeth or do their laundry or do their dishes, which for a very long time, and honestly kind of until Ruth Goodman started doing this research, was a topic that like not a lot of people wrote about and not a lot of people care about. And so Ruth just woke up one day curious about how people used to live their lives in the past. And out of that, she she has had one of the most interesting and spectacular careers of anybody that I have ever heard of. She is a consultant for the Victorian Albert Museum. She's worked on movies like Shakespeare in Love, and she's worked at the Globe Theater as a costume consultant. Um, she has been on a bunch of different shows that maybe a lot of you have seen. Uh, BBC shows like Victorian Farm, Edwarding Farm, Tudor Monastery Farm, all the Christmas ones. It's so cool. She was also on Celebrity MasterChef, which I think was very very cool um and yeah she is she's just one of the coolest people she's written a bunch of books um and they're all super super interesting a lot of them were books that fun fact i read in grad school so that's how i became a fan of ruth goodman um and she just wrote a new book called the domestic revolution how the introduction of coal into victorian homes changed everything and when i tell you that it is one of the most fascinating books that I've ever read. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, Ruth's way of looking at the world is just extraordinary. And so even if you're not like a big history fan, even if you're not, you know, a big, I don't know, domestic history, how did they brush their teeth fan, 
listen to this episode because Ruth's view and her passion and her enthusiasm for what she does is just amazing. And we're so excited to have her. We are so honored to have her on. And so without further ado, here is our talk with Ruth Goodman. Uh, all right, you ready, Eric? Yeah. Okay. Hi, everybody. It's me, Katie Soros. And it's me, Hey Good. See, we nailed it that time. That was really good. That was good. good. Uh, And today we have a very special guest on the podcast. We have a historian and author and and actor and just all sorts of cool things. Ruth Goodman. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here, Ruth. Oh, I'm so pleased. It's really nice of you to ask. How how are you? How are you doing? How's things? It's marvelous. (laughs) The sun's out. It's been snowing, but the sun is out. So this is good. That's fantastic. That's it does. So cool. It looks like you're having just the nicest morning that a human has ever had. You have this beautiful, like fluorescent light through the windows, yeah. and I can just see the steam, like sort of coming off over. The tea, off the know, tea, you oh. fantastic! Everything a girl requires: sunshine and tea. It's, I love <laughs> this. Company. Now, okay, so here's our first hitting journalistic question: How do you take your tea? Oh, spot of milk. <laughs> no sugar. Never okay. any sugar. Okay. I don't okay. Care. Any form of tea that's got actual tea in it is good by me. <laughs> what I'm, is that? Is is it like a moral stance? The sugar is it like about a is it like a purity thing or no, is it a taste thing? I just don't like it. Don't like it sweet. <laughs> I don't like sweet drinks. So I can't be doing all that fizzy pop everybody else drinks. I don't like pop oh, either. Uh, I don't like pop. it either. This is see that we're off to a good start. This is great. <laughs> So I, this is what everybody came for. How how Ruth Goodman takes her tea. This is this that's is all I came this for. Is hard I can hitting now. journalism. I love this for us. Um, so hey, okay. So for those of you who don't know uh, what Ruth Goodman does, uh, Ruth, do you mind like just taking like a couple minutes, just kind of like explain your your job? <laughs> I really have a job. I have a strange life. Um, I'm interested in ordering daily life of the past. I like nitty gritty. I really couldn't give a stuff about kings and queens. They can all go and, I don't know, drown in Malmsey wine or whatever. I don't care about generals. (laughs) I don't care about battles. What I'm interested in is how the likes of you and I clean our teeth, look after our kids, um, decide what to have for dinner. Just the ordinariness of being alive at a different time and, and I like to experiment with that physically. I like to try things out. Um, I think the most exciting research is when you can combine literary, archaeology, surviving objects, and experience. And if you put them all together, it just gets way more interesting. So, okay, so I have a, a, I have a couple of master's degrees in, in Shakespeare. I'm very fancy. <laughs> oh, I'm so very fancy. Lovely. Not as fancy <laughs> as you, but I'm pretty fancy. But so one of the things that I found is when I was, start, like, you were the my introduction to domestic history. And the only reason that I, I found out about it, because I, I read uh, 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 your tutor book for fun. Like, I just was like, I was like, oh, it's, it's tangentially related. I'll read it. And so I got really interested in it, but through you. And so what I wonder is, as somebody who has obviously studied history for so long, what, was it challenging, like, not giving a stuff about kings and queens? Like, how did you, like, did you have to, like, I don't, I want to say like combat that, but like how, like, what was it like being the person in the room was like, but wait, like how, how did they, how did they brush their teeth when everybody else is like, well, King Henry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I, I didn't find it difficult because that's the way I got into it in the first place. I am not classically trained. You're the one with the degrees, not me. I haven't got any, <laughs> I haven't got anything particularly academically exciting. I didn't study history at university. I'm self-taught. And I'm self-taught because I joined a reenactment society. In fact, well, really, the truth is I married my husband. And uh, we were very young. We were 21, very young. And um, he wanted me to join him in his hobby. And I went, what? You want me to do what? <laughs> and we went along, but the people were great. I mean, the people really were great. Um, really welcoming, really friendly, really warm. And I just got hooked immediately. I couldn't give stuff about the battle fighting. Um, but was it, was it the wanted- SCA? No, 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 no. I don't think we really have that in Britain. We have have historical groups, but we don't have the creative anachronisms Oh, sure, okay. I was about to be Um, like, oh my God, are we both in the (laughs) SDA? I got really excited. I got really excited. Really, but not quite. Really, but not quite. 
Um, a bit more like your Civil War people. Okay, okay, that yeah? makes sense. And we have yeah. Civil War as well, but obviously it's a lot earlier because our Civil War <laughs> happened in the 17th century. Um, <laughs> um, the quality historical joke content we've come for this day. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, so yeah, so I just got really interested, and I could, nobody could give me the answers. I wanted to know what did they eat for dinner. Nobody could tell me. So I started researching. I was going to the libraries, couldn't find it. You just had to find it out for yourself. I started having to learn from scratch how to do historical research from original sources, and it just sort of snowballed, really. That so I never had any problem in editing out the kings and queens because they were never there in the first place. Hmm. I cannot tell you in this moment how absolutely goddamn delighted I am. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never had to edit out the kings and queens because they were never there in the oh, first place. Oh my god! <laughs> so, oh my gosh! What, what was what and what was the the? Do you remember the first question that you couldn't find the answer to? Yeah, and it's one I've been working on for years ever since because it remained one of the most difficult. How did they do the washing up? Yep. You know, it, because it's a really basic practical thing, you know, and people are happy to tell you some of, you know, what they might have eaten or a bit of cooking. But how did you wash up after? You've got to wash up. You know, you've got all this stuff covered in gunge. There's no soap. There's no. What do you do? Um, so, yeah, that was pretty much one of my first questions. And it's taken me it's taken me decades to answer it. <laughs> decades. So how. OK, so how how. Do, so so the, the mystery question, how do they do the washing up? What is, what's the process? Like, how do you start finding that? Like, what, well, initially what was... I just kept coming up with dead ends. Like everywhere mm -hmm. I thought there'd be information, there wasn't, you know, like you, you read it, you get some marvelous book out the library and it, it's all about, you know, medieval cooking or something. Yeah. They don't mention it at all. Like, not at all. Um, and then you think, well, uh, there'll be something on women's lives. Surely it's a basic, nope. <laughs> no, nope. nothing there. Nothing there, just not there, doesn't exist. There obviously was no washing up in the past as far as most no. historians are concerned. <laughs> washing up was invented in the 20s, I believe. So, Indeed. So it started coming in, I suppose it just sat in the back of my head because I didn't really know where to start looking beyond that. But, and then things would pop up. I'd be reading something and like, I came across um, a, a, a ballad and, and these things were rude and popular and they were sold on printed sheets really cheap and they were people sang them in the streets for money and they were always, you know, like real popular culture. They weren't high yeah. culture, they were real popular culture, often pretty damn rude and explicit. <laughs> and there was this one of, you know, and, and then a line is like, they're, they're, it's, it's a nasty misogynistic piece about, about a woman, but that one of the slurs against her is that she, screaming for two days and nights about a neighbor stealing half a dishcloth off the hedge. Well, there was proof of a dishcloth. Suddenly I've got reference to a dishcloth. And it was like, you know, like putting together these odd little bits that turn yeah. up here and there. And then gradually you start to think, all oh, right, well, that's the sort of place I might look for more information. And gradually pinning it down and uh, yeah, and eventually, eventually I started finding some proper answers. <laughs> that's that's such an adventure. My gosh, you're like, I'm I'm picturing like sort of a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark style massive <laughs> room and you in it with a small light and you're like, aha, a dishcloth. I've found it. <laughs> well, so I'm I'm really curious about specifically when it comes to cleaning, there were so many processes that, that we now know are very chemically complicated that back in the day, you know, and, and this is anything before, I, I suppose, 1900, don't shoot me, I'm not an historian. <laughs> they, had, they had no idea that these chemical processes were going on. They just knew that they worked. So in, in, your, in, your, in, your, in your intellectual travels, I suppose, what, what process was the most, I guess, clever? What, what, was, what process were you most astounded that we I figured think, out so early on? I think on? the whole business, and I see, now as an American, you probably don't find this quite so weird as you would if you were British. And that's the whole power of wood ash. Huh. Um, and uh, you see, in Britain, we moved over to coal really, really early as our domestic fuel. Um, so in fact, in London, I've just written a book about it. We can come to that. But we London changed over to coal by 1600, by the time of Queen Elizabeth I. London had become a coal burning city. And very, very quickly that moved out across the country. Now in America, as a nation, you never fully went over to coal. Some of your cities did, but only in the 19th century. But even when the cities did, 
all the rural areas around in America remained wood burning. So this knowledge about the power of wood ash remained within the American psyche until living memory. In Britain, most people are completely unaware because we've been on coal for so many hundred years before electricity came in. So for us, the shift over to soap happened in the 17th century. So when I first discovered that wood ash was the cleaning chemical of the past, it was sort of a big revelation for me. Um, it contains, now I always get this wrong, I'm rubbish at remembering these, I think it's potassium carbonate? Anyway, it's an alkali, all right? It's an alkali. Whenever you say we're going to just absolutely believe you, so just say it with confidence. Oh, God, no. <laughs> so you get a load of wood ash and you pour water through and you just strain it. And what comes out the bottom is this liquid that's really, really alkali in nature. And that dissolves grease. And that was the basis of cleaning in the past. So, and, and in, in other parts of the world, not Britain, in other parts of the world, it remains the basis of cleaning until soap took over in the 19th century. But basically you can take greasy laundry, like, you know, you soak it in wood ash, all the grease comes out. Easy peasy, dirty frying pan, same thing. Just a bit of, you know, wood ash in your frying pan, bonk, clean, cuts the grease, all sorted, all sorted. Yeah, so that was quite a surprise to me. And I, I suspect it wouldn't have been so much for you. Huh, do you think, well, not do you think, uh, I suppose, do you know, does, 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 did, did America's relatively slow transition to coal have anything to do with its size versus partly versus to do with English? yes, partly to do with size, partly to do with connectivity. Um, right. You know, I mean, there's loads. You know, the railroads in America are really important, but they're quite spread out. The, when the British um, railway network went, it was very, very dense, really dense. It covered absolutely everywhere. In 1880, um, almost I don't think there was anywhere in mainland Britain that was more than 15 miles from a rail station. Um, so that, wow. yeah, exactly. I, I, it was just like zzz, zzz, everywhere they were. So by 1840, 1850, anybody could, you know, pick up their coal from the nearest station that was only 15 miles away. But actually the coal happened, happened a lot earlier because before the railways, there was the canals here and they delivered coal all over the place. And even before the canals, the inland water system um, coming down, Coal would come from, mostly from Newcastle straight onto boats in the sea, go around the. We're an island; it's small, and then penetrate inland in in rivers. So we had like really good transport links for moving coal around really early, and that was partly luck. Partly luck that some of the most important coal fields within Britain are right on the coast. So getting it out into that transport system was really easy. Ah, huh. now what? What sort of non-traditional event would you say in, in the domestic world throughout the years? What event would you divide everything as pre and post? Oh, so there's definitely the, the change over to coal burning. It, it just change like domestically it changes everything. It changes your cleaning routine, routines. You suddenly mm -hmm. have to start using soap. You suddenly have to start using hot water, which you never had to bother with before. Um, it changes the way what you eat. Now, the British, I'm very... Um, convinced that the British diet, as it is sort of known worldwide, is the result of coal cooking. You have to cook differently on coal than how you cook on wood. Different recipes work, different recipes are easy, different recipes are difficult. So that has a really big impact on your diet. It also changed like the landscape, like if you don't need to burn wood, then you can cut all the trees down, can't you? And turn it all into farmland. You don't need to keep some trees for fuel. My and God, I'd never thought of that. Holy shnikes. That's really, again, really important. So how people manage their gardens, how they manage their hedges, how they manage the, the, the little patches of land around them changed. How they, and then it, it also impacts on how you live within your home because coal smoke is horrible. Yeah. Um, really horrible to live. Wood smoke you can cope with sort of, but coal smoke is really hard. So suddenly there's this huge push to have chimneys. Um, so the whole shape of people's homes and how they lived in them changed, the food you eat changed, the way you clean changed. It was a massive, massive alteration and really sort of underpins much of what we think of as modern living throughout the globe. I'm so wow. happy right now, it's That's fine. Oh, don't worry about me. Okay, so, okay, I have approximately 1,000 questions, but before okay, we get to that, ahead. okay, so we're gonna circle back a little bit. Um, so my question is, is, is more about you than, 
but what yeah. I want to know is how did you go from being an interested person, just wanting to know how like coal shaped the world and, and how they did the washing up to like being the, the person, like being the person who like people call like what like how did that go down like what happened tell me your tell me it just sort of did (laughs) just kind of did i think you know like it's really easy to be a fairly big fish if your pond is small enough it's you know don't have to tell us twice nobody else was interested that's That's exactly it you know like nobody else was interested if you if by some miracle somebody wanted to know about cleaning or <laughs> whatever who else were they gonna ask um and then that is exactly what happened uh, so yeah you just, kind of, you just carved out your own little niche yeah through a hobby and through working unpaid for donkey's years i would help you know i mean that's i often people say to me how do i get your career and i don't know how anybody else would get their career i've no <laughs> idea there's no courses you can go on um i just worked for free for museums and all sorts for years and then for tiny pittances for yeah. you know other other institutions I mean I think perhaps for us for me and my husband because my husband's equally interested although he has a day job that pays the mortgage mm-hmm. um and um but for both of us the real thing was when um the Globe Theatre started I don't know if you've heard of that it's a reconstruction of Shakespeare's oh, yeah. oh really interesting and- <laughs> You said Shakespeare stuff. You might know. When it started, the designer designer and the artistic director really wanted to do it as if it had been Elizabeth at the time. They've got a theatre that's Elizabethan theatre. Why not try and do? But they were all really worried. They thought it would come out as pastiche. They thought it would be NAF, Disney. Everybody, they were really worried. And then the designer, a lady called Jenny Terramani, who's lovely, by the way. She's very exciting. Um, she spotted my husband and I dressed in our full Tudor gear doing stuff. <laughs> and she sort of like, initially she was a bit shy apparently, but anyway, she sidled over and she said, what are you wearing under the, as we showed her, you're wearing it all for real? Yeah. It's all hand stitched. Yeah. Oh, and we made the thread and we made the, and we dyed the cloth and we made the, and we did that. And we did that. <laughs> and we did that. And she just went, I need you now. <laughs> and we talked for hours and then off we went to the Globe. And I mean, we just had for 10 years, we sort of worked as sort of like freelance advisors at the Globe Theatre. And it was the most fantastic and um, your experience. daughter, she's she does the courting, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah she was. Yeah. She I mean, obviously, you know, she didn't get any choice. She was born into that. <laughs> um, she was busily reenacting Tudoriness from the age of five weeks old. Um, <laughs> so by the time she was eight, <laughs> she was really proficient at one of the one of the um, techniques. Um, and so we sat there with the designer, and she's do- and, and the designer goes, "But that really is a sixty. My gosh, she's really good at it. Yeah, she is. Uh, <laughs> I want that." So at age, her, her first, she had her first commercial commission and um, she, she provided the braid that went on one of the actors' um, suits. So, so we had a sort of strange thing, like she'd come home from school and it would be like, do your homework, blah, de, blah, de, blah. And then it would be, stop braiding tonight. <laughs> it too much, but you know, like, just remind her that she might Get want commission for the globe sort of done. if she felt like it. And she finished the commission she made all all 17 meters of it and it went on an actor and her name was in the program she was so proud oh <laughs> that's amazing i i like as somebody who has long been obsessed with the globe and how they do the costumes and everything which we're gonna have to do like a little insert where like i explain why that's so significant to everybody but like it's fine we'll put that here okay cool <laughs> here's 25 Thanks for little extra space minutes. for me I'm not going to put anything there now, just so there's just so we can hear you do that. That's yeah. Always. So you just kind of made your own way, like you just you just yeah. started kind of. Yeah, we did when we when we first started with the reenacting. I think the the group we joined were very much like it was about having fun, which is good. Um, it was about big picture stuff, I suppose. Um, wasn't terribly historically accurate. My husband and I really were very more and more interested in inaccuracy and we were really driving for that we're saying like if we're going to do this we want to we want to really do it we really really yeah. really want to and, <laughs> and i and some people found that a bit much and were a bit off put by it 
um, and other people were really inspired and sort of joined us. Um, and we became like a little, and we, we still are, a little tiny sort of coterie of super enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh you. god, that sounds like the best dinner party I've ever. Oh my gosh! Seriously, to be around a table with all of you. My gosh, be incredible. <laughs> Did you do you find though? Okay, this is and maybe this is just me being a nerd, but do you find that like sometimes like your level of knowledge like kind of ruins it? Like because you'll be watching, oh, you know, I like watch, I can't watch anything supposedly historical <laughs> on the telly. Oh my gosh, I, I, I can't watch historical films. Like just like you're watching I, I, the Tudors and you're even, like, what's happening? I can't. I just can't. I just get so cross. I just <laughs> shouted at the telly the whole time, you know? <laughs> I, you idiots! What do you, what like, do you think is the most, the most common, know? like th what, what's the most common thing that you see that you make that makes you think they would they would never do that that way what is the most uh, the rampant lack mistake? of chemises <laughs> <laughs> not a chemise to be seen I mean, well, there you go you see you're using the wrong word already you're using an 18th century word to describe a 16th century thing there you go there you go <laughs> uh, i don't know anything about anything that's fine i don't but yeah i just i can't i don't know it all annoys me it annoys me when they have like, you know, even in the background and you've got a sycamore tree pre sort of before sycamore trees arrive. <laughs> the wrong species of bees. <laughs> yeah, everything annoys me. It all annoys me. Um, and, but most, I think the thing that most annoys me is, is that historical dramas tend to put a modern mindset inside the past. Um, that the people, the people, you know, if you, the people think differently, they have a different culture. And, and that culture is completely ignored. If you watch a, a film or something, it, it, you know, they might spend a lot of time on, on getting the right car or the right badge on somebody's shoulder, but they're entirely modern people wearing those things, inhabiting those spaces. Mm. They, have, they don't have, you never see the culture of the past. You only ever see the modern dressed up. And, and um, I find that quite upsetting. What, what do you think sort of defines the difference between what you would consider the modern culture versus the old culture? Is it oh a, God, how do the way you that they it? walk or? There's so, oh, well, everything. I mean, everything. Is, the past is a different country. I mean, a really, really different country where people think differently and do things differently and have different attitudes and they have different approaches and different tool sets in their heads, let alone with their hands or, or in their workshops. So, you know, when they face a problem, how they would face it is completely different. Um, it's, you know, the, the world has now become quite joined up, so it's a bit hard to see just how different. But if you think of a, you know, a group of people who haven't had much to do with the Western world, think how differently they approach everything. And that's how the past is. The past is people think differently. Um, I can't put a finger on any one thing. It's so many things. Everything is culturally learned from the way you walk. Definitely. I mean, if you're a people watcher, if, I mean, when I was a kid, I did ballet um, and I loved it. I loved it so much. It's a shame I was never really good enough, but never mind. I loved it. But what it leaves you with is a lifelong interest in movement. And so I do, you know, if I'm sitting at a cafe or something, I watch people walk past and I'm pretty certain I can tell somebody's nationality by the way they walk down the street. It's a cultural thing. Um, and I would say that there are at least three different American walks I can I can identify oh, for different please. cultural groups. Do you in have America. names for them? Are, are, are these <laughs> yeah, catalogs? They're not always somewhere? very complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, you see it all the time. I mean, um, Sikh gentlemen, for example, if you see a, 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 somebody who is brought up in within that culture, gentle, they've got very, very erect spines and they tend to sort of walk like as if almost as if strings were attached to the knees at the front and they lift each knee up huh. as they walk uh, that's completely different if you see somebody who's been living a long time in London from wherever they come from you'll notice that they start to pivot forward at the hip um so that instead of being upright the top half of their body pivots over a little bit like that and they so that they, they're sort of the legs are doing their thing there but from the hip point onwards the back and the neck are always slightly leaning forward and that's much more pronounced in London than it is in the North where you would find that the shoulders were bent forward, but the, the waist bit was straight. <laughs> so, and it, there's all sorts of little subtleties like that and different social groups as well. Walking is something you learn from the people around you. 
I mean, basic walking obviously is a sort of natural thing, but the style in which you walk, you sort of pick up from those who are around you. One thing that I find quite upsetting about some Americans' walks oh, is no. that, I'm sorry, this is, I do find this a bit upsetting. There is, there is particularly Midwest, um, you see quite a lot of people who walk as if they were obese. They're not obese necessarily, but they walk as if they were. There's a sort of a wide-legged waddle. And I find that very upsetting because that, you know, that's people who are brought up in, in, in an area where most of the people around them are suffering from um, uh, obesity and that changes the way you walk. And these youngsters are growing up and learning that's, that's the style of walking. I find that quite, yeah, sad. Oh, that's, that's, oh that's man, I'm gonna have to, now. yeah, now I'm gonna have to like watch, watch everybody. Because I, I grew up in the Midwest, so now I'm wearing it's really interesting you know and like that sort of level of totally unconscious cultural stuff is there has a history um you know I mean everybody talks about that you know that gangster walk with the with the trousers down around your hips you know falling up yeah. that supposedly come from um uh, not wearing a belt in prison um you know that walk has had a fashion hasn't it you know it's sort of fading out again uh, and it moved right across the globe it started in certain areas of america very urban areas of america and then moved out often accompanied by certain styles of music right around the globe and now that's fading away again as a fashion these things come and go and historically there were fashions of movement so you can follow that sometimes there's enough information to sort of follow follow some of those fashions through so, you know, how an actor stands, how an actor takes their hat off, how they sit, how they get from, from one part of the room to another, that is culturally defined. And if you can get it right, it's so convincing. It, it's one of the things you used to do at the Globe is try and teach those sorts of movements to actors. Because even if a member of the audience doesn't know what they mean or doesn't really get it, they know they've been transported somewhere different. It moves, looks utterly different. These, way, these people are inhabiting the space in a different way. And you just pick that up unconsciously. It's body language. You just absorb it. So, I, yeah. Well, I, I, gosh, that's so, pardon my, my just <laughs> utter, my jaw we're just gonna, like falling to my like desk. Release this one just so people can see your face. Just to perpetually mind blown, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, I, I suppose the 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 at least the 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 aroma of the question that is flopping around in my head after Dude, hearing all aroma. that. Aroma. Would you rather me say odor? I can I can say odor. <laughs> I was going to say stench, but I want to have more faith yeah, in myself. Ask than your that question. <laughs> but how much of that do you think has to do with the fundamental the fundamentally different understanding of time that people had as various timekeeping devices and various forms of of artificial light? Sort of came to came to sort of just how how significant is how significantly different were people's understandings of time? I suppose back in the day. I mean, you study so many different eras of time. I don't know which one to specifically ask yeah, about. Yeah, I, I, I. And how might that affect the way that hard. we walk and stuff? I think it. I think it does have lots of impacts, and I. But I find it a little difficult because. I spend such a lot of time doing these things that I'm not sure I have a very good grasp on how many modern people see it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, I just know my 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 father uh, worked in New York when I was when I was growing up as a small child, and yeah. so I I learned to walk for, literally from him. And he spent all of his time in New York City, where you have to walk places frequently, and and you have to get there very quickly. And so I grew up walking very quickly. And so even now, when I walk places. I feel almost as if I'm in a rush because my body is yeah. behaving as if it were in a rush. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of put aback by all the, all the implications of, <laughs> of how each individual movement is, is, is formed by these Hopefully. immense, yeah. yeah, this infinity of cultural things that, that I, I suppose surround us. I'm wondering, are there in, in sort of the culinary world, are there certain other similar things in the, in the washrooms where there's certain things? Um, that yeah there's always this sort of subtlety is everywhere and in everything um, and I mean historically sometimes you get a window into it and you can see it if you look carefully and sometimes you just don't know because the information isn't there um, and the more intimate and personal you go the harder it is to find such information so although I can be fairly confident on some of the movement stuff of the aristocracy way back as far as Shakespeare I really have much, much harder time resurrecting, say, a ploughman 
um, mm. because there's, you know, there's just a lot less information. You get a few things. You get, you, you, you know, people talk about plow and plodding, but you don't get much of a description beyond that. You know, you just get the occasional line reference. Whereas when you're talking about an aristocrat, there are manners manuals which describe things. There are dance manuals. There are fencing manuals, all of which which give quite a lot of description about body movements. And then there are also um, paintings which show fashionable posture and there are sculptures and you know so there's a hell of a lot more information about some aspects and some areas of society than there are about others so it, you know it's sort of a bit of a a mystery often mm -hmm. having found it in some places though you just have to think there's probably everywhere else too it's just I haven't got the right equipment to see it with you know I haven't got the <laughs> telescope that will work through that chink <laughs> <laughs> if okay this is like a very silly hypothetical question but okay. if you could build a time machine and you oh, could yeah. and mm. you could go back yeah what would be like the one thing that you just like desperately want to know like how they did like what would be the thing that you would go back for like where would fixing you fixing your hair underneath the cap <laughs> <laughs> really yeah i mean i've got theories <laughs> That and feminine hygiene. Um, uh, and again, I've got theories, but you know, like, I'm not sure. Have I got this right? I'm yeah. not at all sure. I'd really want to check, you know, I'm not quite sure how you do that when you pop out of your TARDIS and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm in the future. I'd like to know what you do once a month. <laughs> I mean, but it's so interesting that you say that because like those are the questions that like and i think one of the reasons maybe why like i've been so drawn to your work is because like those were the questions that i wanted to know when i was a kid like i remember asking questions like how did they go to the bathroom and and then you'd get in trouble and they'd be like no 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 no. like we're here to learn about the civil war and i'm like right but how did they pee like and then yeah. you'd get in trouble right and so like, I just, I love that that is like, I love that there's at least one other person in the world who like has thought about that and gone, no, 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 I want, I want to know about that. <laughs> um, but okay, so you talked earlier about, um, about inhabiting the past and like, and like, and, and how that worked. You had the very unique experience of kind of getting to do that with your work on like Tudor Monastery Farm and Victorian Farm and stuff. How did how did that come about? Like, how did you wind up like, did the BBC approach you? Did you call them and go, guys, I got an idea for a show that at least 12 people are going to like? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they phoned me and I said no. Um, did you? Again. I did. And then I said no again. Um, in fact, they phoned, it was only on the fifth phone call I finally gave in. Um, it was right at the start when people were—I think they'd done one one program had gone out with people being taken back. Sort of, I, I think they called it 1900 House or something. I don't know if it ever aired in America. Um, it, it it did not, but a lot of people here have seen it because, okay. like, uh, yeah, it's like you got to track and it down. And they've taken a you know modern <laughs> family and they put them in a Victorian house, and um, you know. It was sort of interesting and sort of ridiculous. And then there was another series in America called about the pioneers, um, which I actually made clothes for. Did you really? Uh, the, this is very silly, but I will tell you the story very quickly. So the pioneer show, there was an article that ran in, I want to say like one of like the teen girl magazines, like 17 or whatever, where they like interviewed one of the girls who was on the show. And she talked about how she had smuggled in lipstick in her, like in the, in the, in the seam of the hem of her skirt, she had put in like lip gloss or something. And I like, I've remember that has lived rent free as the children say in my head for years. And now I know the person who made the skirt in which the lipstick was smuggled. It has all come from full cir circle. That's it. That's all I need. That's all yeah. I have to contribute. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, having done those sorts of, I've got that far, you know, they, when I, they phoned me and said, would I go and live on a farm for a year? I said, you must be blinking joking. I'm a married woman. I've got a 14 year old daughter and a business. I mean, no. <laughs> and on the fifth phone call, I, I think I, I think in a rather exasperated tone of voice, I said, uh, you could have one week in four and that's your lot. And they said, yes. And I put the phone down and I went, what have I just agreed to? <laughs> <laughs> what changed? And, and that's my television career began. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious sort of about 
what 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 overwhelms me while while I'm watching any of any of the BBC farm shows, Tudor Monastery in particular, um, a lot of it just looks miserable. Some of it looks pretty fun. Some of it looks very dangerous. Sometimes yep. things look fun and dangerous, but some of them just look miserable. What what out of all the tasks that you've you've recreated, which would be the one that you would hate to have to do to have be your job now? Oh, Victorian know, washroom really. looked pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it's for me. It's always about the cold. I think that's the hardest thing about living in the past. How cold one is for everything. So, laundry and cold water. Well, in the summer, that's no big deal. You go down to the stream, beat it, fine. But in the middle of winter, I mean, oh, oh. and you know, and that sort of grind of dealing with the cold. That's the thing that I find hardest. And of course, giving up tea. Oh. Life's so much better when you've got tea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to embroider that on a pillow for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, uh, which task did you most enjoy? Which one did you find most look, uh, look forward to? Uh, um, oh, gosh. I love making things. I've always loved making things. Um, so whatever it is, you know, that I, I think that's, I, th I actually think it's something quite basic in human beings that making things makes us feel calmer, more into control, happier. Um, so making almost anything, whether that be, you know, a straw hat or a, oh, anything really, I like the making. Um, I enjoy quite a lot of the gardening too. Again, it's very creative gardening. Um, yeah, I don't know hmm. really. Oh, you have good days and bad days, don't you? It's really hard to actually have a list of favourites. Some days the thing that made you happy one day doesn't quite hit it the next day. Um, and that, that constantly changes. I find it quite difficult to give hard answers to questions like that. Hmm. That's, that's such a mood on this podcast. You have absolutely no <laughs> yeah. idea. Like that's sometimes. Really? Like, yeah, sometimes what is what is awesome one day is not good the next day. And that is that is okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Also, on the show, on, on uh, when I say the show, I, I guess I'm referring to, to Tudor because that's that's the one that we watched together, Katie. Um, but the, you make a lot of uh, remedies and, and herbal whatnots. What was the thing that we were most right about in terms of, you know, bombs that worked and whatnot? And what were we most wrong about? Did we do something I mean, that was wrong for a very long time before eventually? Oh, yeah. Most of it was wrong. Um, most of old medicine is downright dangerous um mm. and you know you've got to be really really careful a lot of it, it there's a there's a serious body of placebo um well you know fair enough as long as it's harmless placebo um and very little that was genuinely as far as modern science is concerned effective um and where they are effective it's on quite a small scale um mm. you know i mean elderflower does contain glycerine so if you make a face wash with elderflower and rub it on your face it you will get a you know it will soften your skin but that's not life saving is it <laughs> you know it's quite a minor thing um mm -hmm. you know there is there are antibacterial qualities in a range of plants which do help a bit but it's not the same as having antibiotics um yeah i mean generally all those remedies are quite small scale stuff Mm -hmm. And I'm obviously very careful when I do it on the television not to involve anything that is, is harmful because, you know, somebody somewhere gets the wrong end of the stick and ends up poisoning themselves. I really don't want to be responsible yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I valid. find when I give talks about medicine, you know, it, it, you have to be so careful because you, you say all this up front. You explain, I, you know, you explain the systems about the four humours and the Paracelsus and the doctrine of signatures and the way thinking worked on medicine. And, and he, at the end of it, when clearly everything you're talking about is wrong, but nonetheless, at the end of it, there's always somebody in the audience who comes to me for some sort of medical consultation. And I said, but the whole point of this, I've said, is it doesn't work. You need to go to a modern doctor if you've got a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> there's always somebody who wants to believe it people need to believe i think in medicines um i think witchcraft and medicine together are both superstition people have a deep deep desire for it and they will override almost everything in their brain telling them be careful here this is not making sense people just override it all because they want it so much i don't hmm. know it's, it's it's a it's a complicated thing um 
past ideas about health and medicine. Um, mm. I wouldn't Absolutely. recommend pretty much anything um, <laughs> from the past. Um, you know, I mean, you're not going to do yourself much harm with a rosemary tea, are you? Uh, and, and an elderflower face wash. Yeah, nice soft skin. Go for it. <laughs> um, but if it's serious, for God's sake, don't look to the past for help. <laughs> it can be lovely too, you know. <laughs> Is so, oh man, I've, again, I just have like 10,000 questions. Um, okay. This is, I promise there's a question in this statement okay. somewhere. Go I promise. It. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about what you do is, is you take this idea of like the very small scale, like the very like niche, like how did we do the washing up? How did we do our medicine? How did we wash our faces? All of this stuff. And, and it becomes, I don't know, maybe for me, and I'm just thinking way too hard about it, but I feel like what it, what it provides for us is, is a sort of like accessibility to the past and this idea of like we haven't fundamentally changed like people still need to brush their teeth and wash their clothes and all of this stuff what have you I guess like like what is your connection to the people of the past because it's like on one hand you can look and you can say like your ideas about medicine were very fundamentally flawed and they were kind of bad but then at the same time you know we see these like ingenious things of like using salt to scrub down and like and these kind of things like what what do you what do you what is your connection to like just people in general of the past i think there was a question in there somewhere <laughs> yeah and i think you sort of answered it yourself we are all people and, and I think that is what I feel very much more, that more that you re research and rehearse what, you're, what people are doing, the more you feel, yeah, that fundamentally we are the same. We have different cultures, but we're the same. And, you know, I mean, I, I really feel that history is a form of anthropology. Um, and, and that also works in the modern world. We are all one species. And the differences between somebody who was brought up in the middle of the jungle in Borneo and somebody who was brought up in the heart of New York are tiny. They're almost non-existent. Um, we're still human beings. And yes, we can see the world in different ways and understand it in different ways, but we can also come round to each other's opinions. You know, that culture is very mutable and, and flexible and we can in, reinvent ourselves in many different ways. Um, we share humanity and, and I, I just find that very, I don't know, a good thing. I find it very hopeful and heartening and welcoming and being part of a much bigger human family that extends back into the past and around the globe. Oh, that's so much. That's very nice. <laughs> perhaps, um, perhaps you just answered this, but what, what is what is a common thread, if, if any? Have you, have you noticed a common thread that goes as, back as, you've, as, as, as far back as you've gone and you anticipate will extend as far forward as we will go? And is it, what, what thread of our common humanity is, is, is seemingly constant? I think there's quite a lot of them, aren't there? I mean, the love, the love that develops between people and particularly between parents and children or, or anybody you care for, whether you're physically related to them or not, those sorts of caring bonds are perhaps the most powerful of human experiences. And you see them everywhere in all sorts of contexts. And the way they build, I mean, I often find myself looking into very fractured families um, you know, death and sickness and accident happened a lot in the past and people had to rebuild new families and you, you, you see people supporting each other through all sorts, you know, who actually have no blood relationship to each other at all. You know, so-and-so married, so-and-so brought three kids with them, then both parents ended up dead and, and then, you know, a brother-in-law a brother -in -law on the one side picks up the pieces and carries on and, you know, do you know what I mean? People are forever. Mm making it work, finding ways of connecting with each other and doing that sort of central caring. And I, and I think that is, that is perhaps the most universal humanity. And of course you see that all the time, don't you? Sometimes people go on about, oh, the breakdown of nuclear family, divorce, blah, 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 made families. It's nothing new. It's always been like that. Um, and perhaps more so in the past where so much death and disease intervened. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's perhaps the most fundamental human thing, this ability to care for those who are blood relations and to care for those who are not blood relations and for it to not matter 
it really doesn't make a difference who you care for is who you care for and we are pre-programmed to do that we are a species that is good at caring across boundaries at being community um i think our current culture likes to highlight competition between individuals um, a lot of what's talked about particularly on the bigger political scheme it's uh, thing, is all about the power of competition um, as a driver for human society and i think we're very good at not noticing how much cooperation how much caring how much support goes on that to me is what sets us apart from all other species it is this ability to do community the ability to to come together with different ideas and different cultures and different you know to work together to cooperate it's cooperation that allows you to send men to the moon not competition i mean competition might have had a part of it but it would be nothing if it just competed there would be nothing you need this competition this, this cooperation of coming together and sharing and that is something that you see in the past it's something you see in the future i think that's the thing that goes forward we are really good at caring about each other that's the nicest oh, thing anyone nice. has ever said on this podcast so nice. <laughs> <laughs> well so uh, i think we're, we're probably about wrapping up but i, I do have no one i'm question. i'm asking my question eric i'm asking oh, you have, oh i'm question. sorry I'm oh, at, okay, okay, okay. Okay. It's very funny because you literally were just like, we don't have to compete with each other. Goodman, <laughs> I have the most hard hitting journalistic question that you'll probably ever be asked. I don't want to okay, brag. Go on, okay. Go okay. There's a cooking show on television. Like, you know, okay. we'll say, we'll say, I don't know, Gordon Ramsay. We'll say Guy Fieri. I don't know. Somebody who wins acting or beaten. Oh, that's easy. Obviously Eliza Acton. Obviously. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that was a question for sake, me and you and nobody else. Mrs. Beaton actually copied about a third of her recipes are straight out of Eliza Acton. She just plagiarized her. <gasps> Mrs. Beaton couldn't cook. She she no knew she couldn't cook. <sighs> the Mrs. amount of vindication I feel. Hella- this she was she was an editor. She brought in other people's work and put it all together. She was a rubbish. In fact, she often said herself that was one of the reasons she wrote the book was because she was rubbish at it. And she needed all the help she could get. Now, Eliza Acton's the cook. Oh, <laughs> I need you to know the amount of vindication that I feel in this in this unwarranted vindication in this moment. <laughs> Everybody else listening to this podcast will be like, "What the fuck are they talking about?" And I'm what are you like, talking I'm, about? "It's fine. It's fine. I'm here. Okay, I have gotten you my that. answer." Enjoy your Eliza Acton. She's Thank lovely. You. Thank you. <laughs> uh okay uh eric do you want to do you want to do the thing yeah yeah yes, yes, thing, yes. Man. it's just okay. funny towards the end of every year we, we both always have that one question that we're like i'm gonna ask this i don't get like i gotta ask it um so ruth goodman if you could have a just a, a magic genie wish if you could speak every language on earth fluently and eloquently or play every instrument on earth masterfully which would you choose uh speech speech really yeah yeah yeah. that yeah, was yeah. so quick when why is that i'm not very musical i have not a musical bone in my body i'm a very weird person um i don't really get much pleasure out of music it's not about really? which type i'm just not interested that's really interesting something that uh <sighs> that's something that that katie and i talk about um when we're listening to an interview with you or watching anything that you were on um, is there's such a melody in your voice? You use such a, a full <laughs> range. I like dancing. Of pitch. I love dancing too, but I don't know. I think there's a little bit in me that's not quite there. Um, that other people have this huge emotional responses to music, and I'm largely untouched. That's really interesting. Do you ever get into conversations with uh, your husband Mark about that? I know, I know he's a musician. He is a musician, and it's it's a, it's an odd thing, isn't it? That for him, it's a major passion and really important part of his psyche. Um, and I know he spent years trying to involve me and draw me into it. <laughs> so given up eventually. Well, if he spent years, then I won't. I won't spend that. I won't. I won't try now. <laughs> I had a whole thing I was building up in my head. I was like, oh my gosh, have you heard John Dowland? You know, <laughs> like there's no way Mark hasn't gotten there before me. <laughs> They're all the same. He wrote the same song a hundred yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting though that that as a culture, it is so weird to be considered to be non-musical. I we're, we're very very happy with the idea that somebody might not be turned on by theatre or not be turned on by the visual arts or not, you know, almost every other form of creative artistic thing. It's sort of okay to decide whether you like it or not, but music we assume is universal. Huh, 
that's really, really interesting. That, that is really interesting. Yeah. Well, I know there's there have been studies done that uh, apparently far more people will admit to have having having had uh, an intense emotional reaction to a, a piece of music, whatever it is, modern or or not, um, than would then have then they'd admit to having 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 had an emotional reaction on a, a piece of art or or or. Oh, other. really? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, there is something fundamentally different about the the audible medium, perhaps connected to language. That's 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 my big question that I may well spend the rest of my, my life yeah. asking is is the reason we like music because uh, because of our propensity for language, but uh, but that's a different episode of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Ruth, um, as we wrap up, is there anything you want to talk about? Anything you have going on that you'd like to cool projects like to bring up? Secret, cool projects, secret secrets. Books? I don't know. Oh, well, secret well, compartments you're sewing into <laughs> to, to people's garb. I mean, I did. I, I mean, we we sort of touched on my most recent book about the cult swap from wood to coal earlier. And that, mm -hmm. that came out in the States in October. Um, and, and I sort of, I would like to sort of big that up only because I'm really interested in what other people might think about it. Um, it, was, it was very much a, a project in which I felt I was, you know, stepping into the dark. Um, wasn't something anybody else seems to have written on. And when I it was one of the things spurred me to write it, it was one of those books where I just couldn't, Nobody else seemed to be asking the same questions. So it, it poses a lot of questions about, do you think this might be the reason why we do that? Do you think this is the reason why you do that? And I think it's a very, very powerful thing, the, the switch from wood to coal. And I think it has global impact um, about many areas. I think it might've been one of the reasons we actually had an industrial revolution in the first place. Um, so it's, it's pretty big questions. It's just, nobody else has really addressed them. So am I, am I, am I barking up the wrong tree? Or, or or is there something in it? You know, I think there's something in it, but because there's nobody else, nobody else, very few other historians to sort of balance it against. I'm really quite hoping people have a think. I would, it's a, it's, I'd like people to know that the question was there, even if they decide I'm talking bollocks, I'd still prefer that they read it and shouted at me. I think there's some interesting questions. So I hope you don't mind. The book is called The Domestic Revolution. Um, and it, it's full of questions. And see what you, you think. Go get it and you should go read it because everything Ruth Goodman has ever done is perfect and wonderful and amazing. Um, and also, I would just like to say, as somebody who, who, who is very famously asked one of the dumbest historical questions ever and now is low key famous on the internet, I don't know if you know this about me, Ruth Goodman. Uh, but oh, one gosh. time, I one time, we hadn't okay. talked about this yet. It's, it's oh, fine. I'm um, so excited. Please. So I had a question that no one had ever been able to answer. And I had wanted to know the answer for years. How big was the turkey in a Christmas carol? <laughs> there isn't one. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, how big? How big? Because Scrooge brings the turkey to the Cratchits. And it was like a whole thing. And, and, I, and, and it was a whole thing. And so, so, yeah, that's what I wanted to know. Oh, and then and then I and then I spent I discovered it was a goose. Well, it, there's a goose and there is a turkey. <laughs> there are two different birds. There are two different birds in a Christmas carol. Uh, and I found the answer. I found it took me almost a month, but I found it. I did the math. <laughs> I figured it out. And now on the Internet, if you look up how big is a turkey in a Christmas carol, I am the only person who has ever asked are that you? question. You are the source. You're I am the, the only I am the only if you ask Google. It goes, well, according to Katie Osborne, which I think is the funniest <laughs> thing in the entire world. And so, so yeah, so that was, that oh, was my thing. Bit that was fish in a little pond, isn't it? That was, that was my Ruth Goodman question. That was, that was the <laughs> the thing that I wanted to know. So that was it. That was, that's the, that's, that's all I have to say about that. So yeah, if, and if you're listening, the reason why I bring this up is because asking questions like this is how you wind up writing a really cool book, because sometimes it's okay to just get interested in a weird thing. That's all I have to say about that. Eric, close. I don't know what I'm doing. Please close it. Make this podcast be over. <laughs> uh, um, well, Ruth Goodman, thank you so much for being here. We're 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 both huge fans, and this is the first. There's so many times we'll 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 think we should have that person on the podcast, but because of, we're a mental health podcast specializing in ADHD, there's no real reason to have them on. But then again, being interested in a, in a wide variety of things is very customary of ADHD. So we figured. <laughs> Well, let's just have a segment where we just have people on that we're big fans of and just have a good time. So thank you for being the inaugural guest on Fangirl Friday. We really appreciate it. <laughs>
thank you so much for asking me it's been great fun lovely to meet you both <laughs> thank you so much for being here uh we'll do like a little post wrap-up thingy where we'll tell you where to find all of ruth's cool cool stuff uh baruch Amin, we just think you're the best thank you so oh, much for being here so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> all right and then we're gonna do the cool thing where we where we we end awkwardly this will all be in the podcast i always act like it's okay. not gonna be all right now the podcast is over <laughs> fangirl friday and that's it. That's the end of our conversation with Ruth Goodman. Now, could I have spoken with Ruth for like, I don't know, another seven years and probably not have run out of questions? The answer is absolutely yes, but that seems like it probably would have taken up an unfair amount of her time. So we are just grateful for the time that she spent with us today. So a huge Infinite Quest thank you to Ruth Goodman. And hey, to all of you and the Infinite Quest community whose support and generosity and just honestly your feedback and your enthusiasm and your excitement is what makes episodes like today's Fangirl Friday possible. We are so grateful for each and every one of you. And if you want to learn more about Ruth and her new book and all of the cool stuff that she does, uh, we're going to put together a page over on infinitequestpodcast.com that will be available today, Friday. You can check it out. You can visit the links. You can do all that cool stuff. So yeah, head on over and check it out. Oh, and also, if you have a suggestion for somebody that you think we should have on Fangirl Friday, let us know. Do you know somebody cool? Do you know of somebody cool that you want to hear us talk to? Uh, Shoot us an email, infinitequestpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know because we're always looking for suggestions and we're hoping to make this more of a regular feature. So the more people we have on our list, the better. That's infinitequestpodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, until next time, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to be kind to yourself this week. We'll see you again soon. Bye.